This land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, Wednesday Breakfast listeners. How are we all today? Good morning. Um, how are you? Very how well, Sonera. How are you today? It's nice to be back again. Absolutely. Um, you had a week off sick. I had a week off sick. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a chilly weather right now. I That's know. a bit um, Unsettling. Weird. Yeah, unsettling after all the nice days we had and I was like, Oh, I'm I'm sure something this is the calm before the storm basically. So <laughs> too yeah. good to be true yeah, when it's it too was good to uh, be true. Melbourne spring, but yes, well as we'll report on later, the the weather's certainly playing havoc across the state and also in New South Wales at the moment, but we'll save that update for our headlines. So we have a very busy show again. Uh, first up, we'll be talking about court laws and how they intersect with public interest in Australia. We'll have uh, Isabel Reinecke, founder of Grata Fund, who spoke to Grace yesterday. And um, then we have a segment from you, Sonera. Yes, I spoke to, um, well, Beth McCann from the director of uh, the Centre for Family Research and Evaluation at Drummond Street. Um, we talked about a report released recently um, by them at, with um, you know Family Safety Victoria about um, services um, if whether they are able to um, prov- like provide aid or help people in. Um, situations uh, in abusive situations um, during a crisis like COVID and you know whether they are equipped to handle another one Um, so we'll be talking about that and then after that we return to our discussion with Iranian immigrant and researcher Komron Motamedi about Iran's life uh, woman life freedom movement and, um, yeah, we'll be hearing more about that. And then to round up, up the show, we'll be uh, speaking with a professor of law and dean of law at the Australian Catholic University about the myths uh, surrounding the voice referendum. And he's going to debunk some of those myths and, yeah, just give us a, a clear picture um, of fact and fiction. Okay, so on to headlines. Yes. 
just one moment. Oh, so we first have some updates on the weather. In um, So first in Victoria, the level of bushfire danger in the Gippsland region has downgraded due to heavy rain, which was a welcome sight for crew and CFA fighters helping out in the area. But this now means that there are flood warnings in place. And so far, the latest areas that Emergency Victoria has warned to avoid are McAllister River upstream of Lake Glenmaggie and Acheron River at Taggarty. And the Bureau of Meteorology has issued a severe weather warning uh, for those in Melbourne and central Victoria. Rain is expected for most of the week and as well as possible strong winds of up to 100 kilometres per hour. But meanwhile, in New South Wales, residents um, in the towns are urged to take shelter in, uh, sorry, as fire crews battle to bring out bushfire, uh, battle to bring down bushfires under control um, in the New South Wales coast and Hunter regions, where there were 86 fires burning by Tuesday night. And back to. Uh domestic news, the Black Sovereign Movement is preparing for a National Day of Action to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody this Saturday, October the 7th. The movement is calling for the urgent implementation of recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody, which found major failures by government, prison and police authorities and made 339 recommendations to address these problems. 32 years on, only 64% of the recommendations have been fully implemented, with some Aboriginal scholars claiming the number is much lower. In this time, over 500 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lives have been lost in Australian places of detention. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service says many recommendations have been implemented, then reversed, or implemented on paper without leading to the intended outcomes. The Black Sovereign Movement National Day of Action gatherings will be held across the country this Saturday, just a week prior to the referendum voting day. The Black Sovereign Movement opposes both constitutional recognition and a voice to Parliament and is urging Australians to vote no. And the name of a childcare worker who is alleged to be one of Australia's worst pedophiles has been revealed as Ashley Paul Griffith. The 45-year-old from the Gold Coast has been charged with 1,623 sexual offences against children in Brisbane, Sydney and overseas. Until now, it is considered illegal to name Griffith under Queensland law. However, new legislation took effect on Tuesday, which allows naming of alleged sex offenders once they have been charged with a crime. Before that, they could only be named after committing to standing on trial. The accused rapist uh, faces, uh, faces charges of 91 uh, incidents on prepubescent girls from 2007 to 2022. He is yet to enter a plea and is due to face Brisbane Magistrates Court again on 20th of November. And just finally now for sports... Um, Australian tennis player Mark Polman disqualified, has been disqualified for hitting umpire with 
a ball at Shanghai Masters. Uh, Pullman's was defaulted from the final round of qualifying at the Shanghai, Shanghai Masters t tournament after smashing the ball into the face of the chair umpire. Um, he is the world number uh, world number 140 and was leading Italy's Stefano Napolitano 7-6 and had just blown his second match point in the second set tiebreak when he netted a low backhand volley. The Australian then erupted as he hit the ball in anger and it bounced back from the net. His errand sweat his errand sweat narrowly missed the ball uh, the ball person before hitting the chair umpire Ben Anderson in the face. The ATP is yet to state if Pullman's will face any additional punishment for the incident. And that's all your headlines for today. We'll go to a couple of announcements and then we'll be back. Vibe Union is bringing exciting ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. This is Grace here. I'm going to be... I spoke to Isabel Renicki, who is the founder of Greta Fund and the author of the newly released book called Courting Power, Law, Democracy and the Public Interest in Australia. We discussed the importance of court laws and how it helps with the public interest of Australia. Now let's take a listen. Joining me this morning is Isabel Renicki. Good morning, Isabel. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good, good. So Isabel, you just released your book called Courting Power. And can we just first get you to talk about a bit what is it about? Yes, of course. My new book, Courting Power, is where I tell the story of Greta Fund's work and the importance of open access to the courts to fight systemic injustice. Mm. And in it, I talk about some of the landmark cases that Greta has helped incubate, uh, where we've looked for gaps in the law that are creating barriers to justice and seeking out novel ways to close those gaps using strategic litigation. And I could mention a couple of those later. But at its heart, I wrote the book to open up a dialogue about protecting the independence of our court system. 
Um, and I wanted to highlight and provoke some discussion um, that challenges an insidious campaign that's really been waged by conservatives here in Australia since the 1990s, who were trying to effectively Americanize our system by stealth and really undermine judicial independence. Mm, I see. But I think law is actually something that everyone pretty much knows it exists at this point. But why do you think it's so important to write this book now, at this point of time, especially? Look, I think the thing that's really unique about courts in a democratic system is that they're a place where spin and PR and misinformation don't work. Courts are really interested in facts. And um, if you come into court and you claim something, you really need to be able to prove what it is that you're saying. And that's a pretty rare space in democracy in 2023 for there to be a place where there is power to adjudicate and create an outcome. And those powers are actually only interested in hearing the facts and the law. Now, I want to say that this is not to say that our court systems are perfect Mm -hmm. and we have some serious problems where the courts are effectively acting to uphold systems of oppression that exist in our legal systems, particularly in the criminal justice system. But what I'm really focused on is how courts can be utilised to hold governments accountable. And that's really the starting point. That's why courts exist in the first place. It's actually not about putting people in jail or resolving dis- divorces and other sorts of, kind of neighbourhood disputes. It's it's really at a fundamental level about how government works and keeping government accountable to the law in the same way that everybody else in in society is kept accountable to the law. Mm. And actually what I thought was really interesting was seeing how you talked about public interests in cases that doesn't directly relate to media or defamation because whenever I understand about public interests, it really dwells on what comes out in the media and a lot of them also results in defamation and related issues. So how did you ensure that these cases you chose to write up to mention about in your book were of public interest? What's, what, what's the key understanding here and what, about what's important involving democracy? Yes, of course. Look, lawyers love definitions Mm -hmm. and they can go lots of different ways in in defining things like public interest. But I think really at its core, what you're talking about Mm. is something that's about a broader point. It's about broader community interests. So, for example, I talk about Uncle Pabai and Uncle Paul, two Gautamalagal men from the Torres Strait, who are currently bringing a class action against the Israeli government for climate change negligence. Mm. Now, that's clearly in the public interest because the communities in the Torres Strait are currently suffering from terrible climate change impacts, and those are about to escalate. And they need to bring cases against the government to hold them accountable because the government elsewhere is just not listening. And it's also in the public interest because it actually has the potential to impact in a beneficial way the whole of Australia and indeed the world. Because if they win, the court will find that the government needs to reduce its emissions in line with the science on climate change. And that actually has a benefit to to anyone who benefits from reducing climate harm, which is everyone in the world. So that's, that's what a public interest case looks like. A private interest case, by contrast, might be, for example, Woolworth suing Coles over a dispute about marketing. 
or Ben Robert Smith, who has been, you know, mm. who brought defamation case, mm. he he that's that's actually not a public interest case. That's him saying, "You newspapers and and media organisations, you defamed me." That's not got anything to do with broader public interest. That's about him trying to clear his name, which he was unsuccessful with doing. But there's there's a pretty clear line in the sand between what benefits the community and and what really is just about one person. Mm, I see. So the focus here is basically the public interest and focusing on the community. Is that correct? The, the community. So I think on the one hand, it's about community and who benefits. And I think on the other hand, it's about who's held accountable. Is there a massive dis- imbalance of power between the community and somebody, for example, the government or corporate leaders, that really needs a forum where people are put on a level playing field like the court? Mm, I see. But then what if the system doesn't work? What if, can, can a healthy court system still be in favour? Sorry, what's the question? What if the system doesn't work and and can a healthy court system still be in favour? Yes, I mean, look, there, there are parts of the, our court system that don't work right now. So the mm. reason that I started Gratifund was to deal with one of those problems, mm. which is our adverse cost system, which means that if you bring a court case against the government, so for example, one community that we've supported lives in remote Northern Territory in Eastern Aranda country, um, they couldn't bring that case because if they lost, they would have had to pay the government's legal bills. So that's our adverse cost system. And so what we said is, okay, well, if you bring the case, we'll make sure that if you lose, we'll pay that legal bill. But that actually, that legal bill should never be something that the government could chase against people in remote communities because they just obviously don't have the funds, but also it's a public interest case. And the rest of the world has really developed ways to deal with that. So, for example, in the UK or in Germany or in the Netherlands or in South Africa or Brazil, courts and and parliaments have figured out ways to make it possible for public interest litigants to bring cases without the fear of adverse cost risk. Unfortunately, in Australia, we haven't done that. And that's what Gratifund does in part, is provide that sort of financial support to enable people to bring important court cases. But what we do have is quite a strong court system. So once you actually get there, it is robust and it is independent and it is free from facts and from, sorry, misinformation and spin. Mm. Um, But that's something that we really need to hold on to and protect because there has been efforts, you know, really since the Mabo decision to undermine the public trust in courts. Mm. And that's, that effort to undermine public trust in courts is, you know, there there is a plan behind that, and that is to make the court system more politicised and less powerful and less capable of holding governments accountable to mm-hmm. the law. Courts make decisions that shape our national identity. So if you think about the Mabo decision, that really changed Australia's national story about who we are and what we accept and what we don't accept. And the, the High Court often has to play that role. So, for example, it... It is the the organisation, it is the institution that has decided that the government does have the power to indefinitely detain people who are seeking asylum if they can't find a a home country, unless they can find a home country for them. Um, They're also the courts that have found that the AFP can't raid a journalist's home if that journalist is simply seeking to report on, um, you know, misbehaviour by government. So it's really important that we look after that court system and, and make it function well because when it's under threat, what it does is it makes less bold decisions and it doesn't you know, d- do the thing that is kind of often demanded by the law, um, which is for, for democracy to be upheld and for values to be upheld that respond to democracy. 
So it's really important that we both celebrate that the parts of our court system will work well, but also work on the parts of the court system that aren't working well, like changing the adverse cost system so more people are able to access the courts. Mm. What's the similarities with the impact of the far right on the US Supreme Courts and Australian courts? Um, so, for example, the uh, the undermining of Roe v. Wade, which was the important case that found that women had a right to uh, terminate pregnancies if they needed to or wanted to, which has now been undone because of a multi-decade um, process by conservatives to try and appoint political conservatives to the High Court, sorry, to the Supreme Court in the US, mm. which then can undermine decisions like that that they disagree with. Now. There are people in Australia who would quite like for the courts to do similar things. You know, there are people in Australia who would like for the courts to only make decisions that they agree with and not make decisions based on the facts and the law. And they quite are quite drawn to the situation that exists in America as they see it as a way to stop progress. And so there are there are commentators from the Murdoch press in particular, mm. there are conservative politicians, and there are a number of institutions, including the IPA and the Samuel Griffith Society, which are really interested, I think, in making or replicating the, the dynamic in America, in Australia. And they're doing that by seeking to have political conservative appointments made to the High Court, and they've been successful in, in recent times. Um, they often call people uh, conservative and then that person gets to the, the court and they don't make particularly conservative decisions. But um, in the latest round of, of that campaigning, um, one High Court justice in particular was appointed who has then proceeded to make decisions that are quite alarming in terms of the implied freedom of political communication, suggesting that actually maybe that's not settled law when it is. So that's really just a sign that those forces in Australia who would like to have an American political a political and legal system are actually starting to have some success in Australia and something for us all to be cognizant of and, and ready to um, defend. Mm, I see. And Isabel, I'm unfortunately running out of time, so I just want to get one last question for you. Of course, yep. sure. What do you hope readers understand after reading Courting Powers? What can they take away from this? Hello? Oh, sorry. Did you get my question just now? No, do you want to go again? Oh, yeah. So what do you hope readers understand after reading Courting Powers and where can people access this book? Sure. Well, people can find it in bookstores. They can come along to our book launch at Readings in Hawthorne on Thursday evening this week, where I'm going to be speaking with Andrew McCormack, the host of the 7am podcast. Um, and I really hope that people can have a look at this book and understand a bit more about the role of courts in our democracy, hear about some of the really amazing cases that are shaping our country as we speak, and also be a little bit aware of some of the efforts in, in Australia to really kind of undermine the, the independence of our courts. I also hope that people start to understand that there are procedural issues in Australia, things like adverse costs, which are really unfortunately getting in the way of really important public interest litigation getting to, to court. And it doesn't have to be that way, that actually you see systems like the UK have, have changed to enable public interest litigants to bring important cases. And that's something that I hope we can do in Australia as well in time. Mm. Awesome. Thank you so much, Isabel. It's been lovely having okay, you. Okay, thank you. Nice yeah. to speak to you. Thank you. And that was Isabel Renegi, the founder of Greta Fund, an author of newly released book called Courting Power, Law, Democracy and the Public Interest in Australia. We discussed the importance of court laws and how it helps with the public interest of Australia. You can buy the book at Monash University's publishing website. You can just search for Courting Power by Isabel Renegi. 
You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Hey, you all out there? Let's join the National Day of Action to stop black deaths in custody. 1pm Saturday the 7th of October at the State Library of Victoria. We need to implement the recommendations from the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody now. You say you respect country and you believe in black justice, then you turn up because we have an opportunity on the 7th of October to push this government to implement recommendations that will keep our people alive. For more information, go to blacksovereignmovement.com That's B-L-A-K sovereignmovement.com Black Sovereign Movement is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Sonera. And right now we're going to go into, uh, go into a segment. So in a recent report released by Family Safety Victoria, Experts are saying that Australia is not equipped to keep at-risk families safe during a crisis. Data indicates that family violence spiked during COVID-19 and services were stretched in, in were very stretched in terms of providing the support needed. Beth McCann, director of the Centre for Family Research and Evaluation at Drummond Street, joined me to talk about the report and why services are not yet ready to offer adequate support during another crisis. Um, so, first of all, can you tell us, if you can, very briefly about, you know, how the research for this report was um, conducted? Um, so, the research project was funded by Family Safety Victoria and it was led by Drummond Street Centre for Family Research and Evaluation, um, the Centre for Innovative Justice at RMIT and the Australian Institute of Family Studies. And when we went into it, we we didn't want to just look at special the specialist family violence service system. We wanted to take a really broad look at different services where people who are experiencing or using violence might interact with the service system. We know that particularly for diverse communities, often it isn't specialist family violence services that are their first port of call. So we spoke to, we had a number of different components of the study. So the Australian Institute of Family Studies um, ran a survey and we had about 206 responses to the survey from people from a broad range of different services. So um, alcohol and other drug services, housing, homelessness, family services, um, a broad range of legal services as well. And um, then we also had the Centre for Innovative Justice who did um, some sector focus groups, which took a bit more of an in-depth look at some of the questions that we explored in the survey. And they spoke to 134 practitioners from across a range of different sectors. So had a really good sample size in terms of hearing a lot about those in-depth experiences that practitioners had. We spoke to people who were using violence during COVID. So we had a number of um, interviews with people who used violence. We spoke to a number of people who experienced violence and who accessed the service system during COVID. Um, and we also did some organisational case studies. So um, 
we led with some of our partner organisations some in-depth looks at some organisations' experience. So we looked at Drummond Street Services to see um, what they experienced, Gen West, and also um, Good Shepherd. And it was quite interesting because we got to look at a pre-COVID period of time versus a COVID period of time to see what had shifted and changed in terms of client experiences. And just um, adding on to that, you know, speaking of um, COVID, you know, it was pretty clear that, you know, with people being unable to leave the house and, you know, people with less, people were left with less financial stability, um, the pandemic like seem to really elevate the risks of family, domestic, um, any sort of violence. Um, are there any other risks that were like specifically ex um, exacerbated by the pandemic? Yeah, so we saw it was quite interesting because we saw an increase in demand across most service types in terms of an increase in family and domestic violence. Many for many people, it was the first time they'd ever presented to services in relation to the violence. But it wasn't just family violence. As you said, it was also co-occurring needs. So we saw escalations in other things such as mental health distress, alcohol and other drug use, um, social isolation, given that everybody was locked down. Often we'd see drop-offs drop in service demand during lockdowns and then real peaks afterwards. And many services talked about the fact that they actually seem to be seeing the peak of COVID now. So alcohol and other drug services, for example, are seeing people now presenting at services who had huge spikes in their drug and alcohol use during COVID and they're only seeking support. So we're not yet through it. And I think that was something that the research highlights, that how do we have services that actually represent communities and have links to communities. So when there's a disaster or crisis, you can really leverage off those pre-existing links and you can work with the communities that you already have strong relationships built with. Um, so there's a lot of those questions to guide people's thinking and planning for future crises and disasters. How can we support those most in need in crisis is how do we support them better most of the time anyway? How do we have intersectional service delivery that really looks at a whole person and centres their whole identity in the work that we do. Yep. And lastly, just wanting to know, what are some of the ways that people can get support if they are facing a crisis like family violence or they're going through um, drug abuse or alcohol abuse? Um, just at the moment, what are some of the services that are available yeah, so there are a number of services. Um, I think it it depends a little bit on where people are based and what their needs are. Um, in terms of family violence services in Victoria, we do have the Orange Door, which is a good way to link into and be referred to the services in your area. Um, you can call helplines. We actually saw an increase in people seeking support from helplines during the crisis, which was fantastic. We have services that deal with a broad range of things within the community. So... Um, I know at Drummond Street Services, what was quite interesting at the beginning of the pandemic was we saw quite a big increase in people seeking support for children in need. And actually, when we were doing the intake in those first sessions, there was quite prevalent domestic violence um, that was in as part of that family. And we saw this in our organisational case study, but it was a safe way for them to access the service during a lockdown. So I think if you're accessing services and support, it's finding ways to do that in a safe way for you um, and doing it in a way that is safe and accessible. So it can be through a service you trust um, in terms of getting a 
a warm referral or it could be seeking services directly um, that you find. And just lastly, I was just wondering, you know, do you hope that we have like learned from COVID in terms of, you know, make like shaping the future of how services can interact um, or just provide better help to people? Um, yes, I'd like to be positive and say yes, but I still think we do have quite a long way to go. Um, but it's important to learn from from this. We don't want to repeat the same mistakes that we did during COVID. And I think what the Future Proofing Safety report highlights was there are a number of gaps and weaknesses that already existed within the service system and they were really exacerbated by the pandemic. So responding to some of those gaps, educating ourselves what the gaps are and finding ways to, to do better next time, I think is critical. Um, but there were some really positive stories as well that came out of the research. So I think uh, thinking about the ways that we can adapt and we can respond when we do centre the needs of community is critical to thinking about how we can make services safe and accessible going forward. And that was Beth McCann, Director of the Centre for Family Research and Evaluation, talking about the report titled Future Proofing Safety. You can read more about the findings of this report, which also has an interactive and easier to read version. This will be linked in our show notes with other links to services you can access if you are in distress. And to listen back, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash Wednesday-breakfast. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged 3 and 4 can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enroll for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Corey Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 855am on the dial. Now turning to the voice to Parliament, last week we heard from a YES supporter, Wiradjuri writer and University of Melbourne writer-in-residence, Associate Professor Janine Lane, who shared her view on why a voice to Parliament is an important step forward for First Nations people. This week we share a different view. Senior initiated clan leader of the Yongnu Nation of North East Arnhem Land, Reverend Dr Ginny Yini Gondara OAM, outlines his position on treaty and the upcoming voice referendum. This segment was first aired by Annie McLaughlin on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. Let's take a listen. I got an email from uh, filmmaker Sinem Samban, who is the director of uh, the film Law of the Land, uh, important film uh, from Generation Media. And uh, what she was sending out was a public statement and press release from senior initiate, initiated clan leader of the Yulung Nation of Northern East Arnhem Land, Reverend Dr Jinny Yingi Gondara OAM. And he outlines his position on treaty and the upcoming voice referendum. It's dated 20th September 2023, and I thought it was worth your attention. This is what he said. 
Since the referendum in 1967, when Ballander, non-Indigenous, voted for my people to become citizens of a country we already belong to, you have stripped our leaders of their dignity and authority and you have made us subject to devastating laws and policies that you have forced upon us. For decades, these laws and policies have deprived my people of their basic human rights, access to their land and waters, and their God-given freedom. And now you are forcing upon us a tokenistic solution to the chaos you have created using the same system that has held us hostage from the very beginning. If my people vote yes in your upcoming referendum, it is only because we are grasping for some kind of hope. But it is a false hope. Albanese has said many times that the voice will give, will only serve as an advisory body which will which may or may not affect decisions, that it will have no veto power and that it will not lead to treaty with the Crown. So I ask, what is all this referendum actually for? Is it to make Ballander feel good? Is it to distract us from the prize that many elders have been fighting for most of our lives? Treaty? You cannot cherry-pick who you consult with and then say it is what all Indigenous people want. Most people in remote communities have no idea what this voice is about. The result of this referendum will only reflect what the majority non-Indigenous population of Australia thinks is right for us. In my 78 years living and working in both worlds, I have witnessed the Australian government continuously handpick Indigenous people that behave like the master-slave, mirroring what the government says while they ignore the voices of clan leaders and community members who challenge them and the system they are operating under. This is nothing less than dictatorship and the continuation of the dividing and conquering of my people. The yes or no approach you are forcing upon the country divides people into conflicting camps while distracting them from what the real problems are. Your proposed voice cannot represent the voice of all First Nations across Australia because our experiences and needs are not all the same. Centralised decision-making has never worked for us and fails all of humanity. That is why we need our original clan-based leadership and decision-making processes that we have used for tens of thousands of years to be recognised and respected. I question this referendum and the value of the voice that it offers, so I will be voting no. But because of this, you cannot categorise me beside people like Jacinta Price or some of the racist voices also saying no. They have their own reasons. This is so much more than just a yes or no situation. Where is our right to choose either? If you have really been following Indigenous rights and the policies affecting my people, you will see that yes is not a step forward in the right direction. It is another step towards the assimilation of our culture and the demeaning of our sovereign 
and our law, sovereignty and our law. It is also important to see that voting no won't mean a missed opportunity because the voice offers nothing meaningful in the first place. Stop treating us like children and forcing inappropriate solutions upon us that are propped up by mainstream propaganda and funded by corporations that have never cared for our self-governance, our liberty or our freedom. We don't need a saviour. My people have their own pride, their own authority and their own dignity that comes from mundane system of law. If the government is serious about listening to our voice, they will accept the invitation I have put to them for almost 20 years to meet in a neutral space with the political leaders of our sovereign governments and begin the overdue process of real dialogue and negotiation. Colonial system of the government does not satisfy us. It's not the system of government for us. It's got nothing to do with us. And yet, you invite us to become citizen of this nation and the country and the subject of the law. And yet you ignore our law. Our rule of law. So that we can follow your law. We are not part of the Jewish. We are, we are not a part of the decision. You done it to satisfy you, not us. Prime Minister that has been elected into this government and the parties are still filing Aboriginal people, the Yoruba people, the First Nation. I call for treaty. Treaty now, as Manda was saying, you to Indy. Treaty now, I never been happen in his lifetime when he hoped to see a treaty through you to Indy. There must be understanding that we are a sovereign nation. And that system is already there. A different format of election. You know, Yutu Yindi is a term that we use. We allocate responsibility to each other. Yutu becomes in power. Later, there will be why they become in power. So system is there for self-government. It's time that we create a Yuta platform, Yuta Warao, for Marma government to come and sit and talk. Papa, 
ada rum dapat makan, ngarang or, udang or, or makar kaya mak or, malu ngai buk makui or ngomengi nakal pening, tu ada nampun dokal. And this this new prime minister saying all this, saying all sort of things, telling us this is what he's going to do, telling us. This is what he's going to do, and his government. And his word was a strong word for saying, my government will be welcome for your voice in the parliament. Instead of saying, my government will be happy to sit and talk to Liangaratmir, to all the Jirika and Dalkara. We didn't hear that. Where are you leading us? Are you leading us into freedom? Are you leading us into self-government? Are you leading us to become the independent nation? Are you leading us where we have our own choice? And we live with that choice. Are you recognize and respect and honor our leaders? What's there for me and my people? Where are you leading us? I tell you, you are leading us into destruction. And that was senior initiated clan leader of the Yongu Nation of North East Arnhem Land, Reverend Dr Jinni Gondara OAM, outlining his position on treaty and the upcoming voice referendum. The life and legacy of Reverend Gondara can be seen in an award-winning independently produced documentary, Lukunara, The Law of the Land, which is set for an online release this Sunday the 8th of October. And to find out more about that, you can head to the documentary website, lukunarafilm.com. That's L-U-K-U-N-G-A-A-A. Apologies, I will start that again. L-U-K-U-N-G-A-A-A film.com. And you can find out about the documentary release there. So that sounds like it could be a really interesting uh, one to catch. We're going to head to a track now. This is Barker Black Matriarch. And uh, when we come back, we'll be uh, talking about the Iranian movement. We'll have uh, our second segment talking to Iranian researcher Comran Mogadep Gebi. <laughs> Is it enough? I call a 
Westernized my black mind and from the dream time I go back They commit a genocide through my tracks They raped our mothers less than my black They bought the violence when they attacked I ain't here to start trouble, I'm just here to state facts You can't paint me how you wanna paint cracks And I'm tied to my mob, got my mob on my back <sighs> Waratahs are covered in blood Whitewashing our history to cover it up all in the pudding Cause this nation couldn't give a fuck about us We survive unseated, undivided Our people stay fighting cause the flame is ignited We stay righteous, we cannot be silenced Cause silence is violence, the reason we're divided And they choose not to digest the truth Instead they just go ahead and delude our youth Only love your system cause it just suits you Give a fuck about the law, yeah I'd rather grassroots Black to the bone, black to the busy Mob on my back, yeah they all rock with me Barker in my blood, that river flow through me I'm matriarchy, all bloodline, 120 this for the black matriarchs This for my sisters who lived in the dark This for my sisters who carry our past on their shoulders This is for black matriarchs This is for all of our women This is for all of our children Couldn't care less about the monarch I'ma set fire to the kingdom I'm coming for them More hail to black matriarchs I'm the pain and the proof The history that lays out the truth And they couldn't walk a mile in our shoes Tell us to go bush when they all introduce Fuck it, we've been here for too long Matriarchy blood, yeah, been built strong Songlines deep, yeah, got me singing songs Cause I can't forget where I came from Barkinji country, Mungo man Pass it to my kids, tell them this your land I came from the dirt, go back in red sand There's a river, uncle, I'm proud of who I am Creator, created me tough and I'm calling out all your bluffs Say in the past, it's all in the past Well that dark past still lives in my mum I stay radical, I know the truth Couldn't kill my ancestors, I'm the proof I know I still got some screws loose But my third eye's open and I'm looking right through Looking at you, nuncle right here Gonna do what I do, so my little black seeds Ain't gonna prove shit to you Not just sent me, gone but what do 3% me, hold it down for the few This for the black matriarchs This for my sisters who lived in the dark This for my sisters who carry our past on their shoulders this is for black matriarchs This is for all of our women This is for all of our children Couldn't care less about the monarch I'ma set fire to the kingdom I'm coming for them More hell to black matriarchs You know, I have a culture I am a cultured person Don't try and suppress me And don't call me a problem I have never left my country I am not the problem And that was Barker with Black Matriarch. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. Now, last week we heard from Komran Moshamedi, an Iranian researcher living in Nam, who spoke about the origins of the Life Women Freedom Movement one year after it began. The movement was sparked by the death of 22-year-old Masajina Amini, who died in police custody after being arrested by Iran's morality police for failing to properly cover her hair. The movement has now become a symbol of Iranian resistance worldwide. Comran explained that while the movement was led by women, it was by no means a knee-jerk reaction to a single tragic death. The work of Iranian feminists is grounded in strength and solidarity, he says. Further, anti-government action was not taken by women alone, with different sectors of Iranian society responding to the socio-political situation in different ways. This week, Comran shares about some of the obstructions to progress in Iran, from the absence of labour unions, the role of misinformation, capitalism and Western imperialism. 
Let's take a listen. Kamran Motamedi, I'm an Iranian immigrant and I research on intersectional development and gender in Iran. To be honest, presenting a comprehensive picture of the past year and uh, evaluating it is uh, it's a challenging task, primarily due to its uh, multidimensionality and complexity. So since uh, January 2016, a significant portion of marginalized, disadvantaged, and impoverished segment of society who had long been neglected by middle class and the wealthy uh, started to revolt. They made it clear that they would no longer heed uh, formal political parties and group within the Islamic Republic. In another level, union and labor activities suppressed in Iran. Unions are not possible really, even in the weak form that, you know, they exist in Australia, for example. The government is constantly trying to destroy unions, uh, first by suppressing them and then by creating parallel ones. However, uh, many unions, such as teachers and retiree unions, try to present their demand in a way that, you know, cannot be politicized by the government, you know, to make some room to organize, network, and raise class consciousness. Despite the severe repression and arrest of all influential members of the teachers' union, this union has had an acceptable activity in the last decade. And as a general context, uh, I think we should admit that there is a type of predatory capitalism in Europe that does not care about its own stability. In fact, capitalism is basically predatory, but in the West, supporters of the system have thought that have thought about its long-term stability. You know, for example, they said that, okay, if the workers are so poor and if they cannot afford to consume, this system is not going to work. And there should be a mechanism so that people are not in absolute poverty and they can consume. All of those safety nets, safety nets and, you know, uh, social security in the society yeah, that make sure that, okay, we have enough money to spend and consume and the system is working. Such thinking does not prevail in Iran. The rulers are looting the country as fast as possible. And from high-ranking uh, politicians to middle bureaucrats, they only pursue short-term personal goals. Iranian society is very inflamed. More than 30% of uh, people are below the absolute poverty line and the number is increasing every day. High inflation is persistent and food prices are rising rapidly and people are getting poorer every day. Inequality and commodification are extremely high. Studying in universities of capital in recent years is almost available to only uh, top three deciles of the society. Environmental problems in many parts are catastrophic and have reached an irreversible stage and have endangered the whole life in some part of Iran. So this is, a, I think, very brief context of what is happening. <laughs> And 
And how has the opposition to the Iranian government unfolded outside Iran? Uh, well, unfortunately, the Iranian diaspora opposition has faced significant challenges. Western countries often oversimplify the view of Iran, and Iran government also have its own propagandists from top uni scholars to so-called authentic activists around the world. During the Jina uprising, we saw that both the government and the royalists as one of the opposition group spend a lot of resources on spreading misinformation and uh, both have their useful idiots. You know, efforts to form a unified opposition organization have been short-lived, also among some famous Iranian figures and celebrity. I think it lasts about two months. And certain royalist faction have adopted far-right ideologies and uh, claiming that they are pursuing coup-like strategies in collaboration with IRGC. So these developments have uh, really complicated the opposition efforts to have any meaningful and effective change in Iran. So you mentioned Western countries oversimplifying their view of Iran. Do you mind to elaborate on that? You know, there are... There... In every society, there are there are different factions and classes and uh, demands that uh, follow by different group. And when the whole uh, thing in a country or a big uprising, it should be summarized in uh, five minute news. So you just uh, mention how states and uh, big institutions seize the country and uh, all the differences ignored because you want to make a narrative that easy to understand maybe for uh, people or it's easier to combine with some uh, political action like regime change or you know in some examples you know even invading a country we, we 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 all remember that all those excuses that you know us and britain claim about iraq libya afghanistan and all of them were was very simple message that followed by the you know the necessity of attacking and attacking to those country and bombing those country for spreading freedom and democracy so you've been talking about the role of media uh, in terms of representing the Iranian situation in the West. Can you tell us a bit more uh, broadly about how you see the role of the West in terms of Iran's political landscape? Well, uh, certainly. You know, uh, the Western imperialism has been a significant factor in, in Iran history, in in 1979 revolution, uh, Western powers, especially the U.S., supported Khomeini, you know, leading to suppression of leftist group. Uh, the imposition of economic sanction by U.S. also has primarily harmed the Iranian people rather than government all of these years. The Iranian government has also sought support from Russia and China while improving relation with Saudi Arabia. Last month, when uh, Iran was uh, invited to BRICS summit, it's like that they have or they gain confidence. And uh, as soon as these things happen, 
outside of Iran, they started arresting some of the feminists and, you know, influential people inside of the country. So hostage policies also with West have seen uh, progress as uh, illustrated by recent uh, prisoner exchange. The international community stands toward Iranian government remains really complex and uh, various factor, to be honest, at play. Uh, at the moment, uh, in my view, I think uh, generally the West and especially even U.S. doesn't have a big problem with Iran. Uh, more than this, uh, you know, trading the hostages and uh, between U.S. and Iran, we've seen in the news in last two, three months that Iran can sell more oils easily. And uh, yeah, it, it's very uh, complicated at the moment. This is what I've seen uh, I'm not sure how we can analyze it at the moment. And in terms of the misinformation you referred to, can you tell us uh, what what messages are being promulgated and who is spreading that information? You know, there are no details study and all these uh, incidents are very recent. So I'm just talking about uh, my observation. Uh, both uh, parts of the gov uh, opposition, especially royalists and uh, government, uh, spread this uh, misinformation and disinformation. For example, uh, from the side of government, they constantly uh, published uh, conflicting information about people's support of the movement or their participation in the movement or uh, Western government influence and interferencing in Iran internal affairs or, uh, for example, broadcasting uh, forced confessions uh, from those uh, who were arrested during the demonstration that, yes, yeah, some people were, you know, we are receiving money from some uh, foreigners and, in you know, starting this protest, blah, blah, blah. The same goes for opposition groups. For example, two satellite channels, one funded by royalists and the other funded by Saudi Arabia, both spread a lot of misinformation and disinformation. Some people were thinking that after first and second months of the uprising, yet, yet that the government is break and the leaders are running away and they're looking for, you know, uh, a third country that they just goes and yeah, it's finished, it's done. And it really harms the movement. <clears throat> And finally, can you tell us how the Solidarity Movement has developed in Nam, in Melbourne, and what our listeners can do to learn more about the work of the local diaspora and get involved? Well, thanks for asking this. Uh, I think uh, there is not much that people here can do, really. You know, the most important thing uh, we can do here is to have better government here. If the United States and Britain, for example, want to attack another country again, will Australia send troops? What we are going to do in that situation? Or, for example, are people aware of the government cruel and humiliating treatments of asylum seekers here? What we are what we are doing about this? So, uh, in my idea, the better government uh, here with a lower imperialist tendency is also better for people of Iran and other peripheral countries. 
if trade and diplomatic relations between Australia and Iran were bigger than this, perhaps, you know, smaller option could be thought of. But in the current situation, I don't think we can much do about this. Naturally, all people, you know, sympathize with each other uh, through friendly relations, uh, which is another matter. And that was Konran Motamedi, an Iranian researcher living in Nam, speaking about the role of misinformation, Western imperialism and capitalism in driving and obstructing Iranian resistance. Now we're going to pass over to Pat, who's going to have a legal expert on the line talking to us about the voice to parliament. Yes, good morning Claudia, good morning all listeners as well. I'm going to be speaking with Australian Catholic University Professor and Dean of Law, Thomas Moore Law School, Patrick Kaiser, uh, discussing the voice referendum and we'll be debunking the myths. Patrick is on the line now. How are you going this morning? Good. It's nice to speak to another Patrick. Yes, always good. Always good. It's going to be a bit a little awkward for listeners, but they'll they'll work out which ones at which ones are at home. The other one uh, in the studio. That's all good. <laughs> um, so, Patrick, um, we're going to have uh, uh, almost seventy percent of the population will vote in this referendum. Uh, yep. Do you think most people understand the importance of the of the referendum itself? Uh, look, I, I don't know for sure whether most people do, but I think in the last two weeks um, there's, it's pretty likely there's going to be a significant uplift in uh, campaigning mm. uh, and hopefully the message that people have been getting in the last month, you know, if you don't know, find out, uh, has been starting to uh, filter through to people. Yeah, definitely. Something I find uh, interesting um, that could, will happen if the if you do vote yes, um, and this is something I taught during school, was about Terra Nullius and that whole uh, discussion reg- regarding Captain Cook and um, uh, that situation that will be abandoned in the con- is will that be abandoned in the constitution? Is am I, am I correct in saying that? No. So, but so basically, um, uh, the Crown has. Uh, radical, what they call radical title to all land in Australia, mm. unless it's been alienated. Uh, you know, so for example, my house is, uh, you know, my house. I have Torrens title over it. I have fee simple. Uh, um, the voice isn't going to uh, uh, allow, you know, the Wurundjeri people, the Kulin Nation, to take over my backyard uh, because that that land is owned by me. Mm. Uh, so, so the voice isn't going to change anything to do with land title. All it's going to do is provide Aboriginal people with uh, an opportunity to um, advise the parliament on legislation that comes before it. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Pat, for uh, actually giving debunking that little myth I, I had in the back of my head uh, as I was typing down my questions uh, yesterday. Sure. In, in terms of in, in terms of that as well, what will that advisory body have? Will they have, will they have enough power to... Uh, support and maybe provide legislation to the parliament or do they have to, to give advice to a legislation? Is, is that what's going to probably happen? Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, you know, the way the way out um, the Commonwealth Parliament works is that uh, the government introduces legislation. So at the moment, that's the Labor Party in the House of Representatives. They've got the majority. So anytime they want to introduce legislation, they can do that and they know they've got majority support in the House to pass that legislation. 
then it needs to go off to the Senate. Uh, and of course, the Senate has a different political complexion. Uh, the Labor Party has to work with the crossbench, which includes uh, the Greens at the moment, or they might work with um, people on the other side of Parliament to pass particular pieces of legislation. Uh, and then that legislation goes back to the um, House for a final uh, read, and then it's passed. The um, Aboriginal voice to Parliament doesn't have any role in any of those parliamentary processes. So it's still business as usual. Yeah. Uh, what, what will be different is that when, when a piece of legislation is before the House or the Senate, uh, the House or the Senate uh, can allow uh, particular committees of the Parliament to review the legislation or they can take advice from external uh, people or external bodies. So, for example, uh, at the moment in Queensland, uh, Victoria uh, or in the Australian Capital Territory, any time a piece of legislation is passed uh, or the, the Parliament's considering it, um, they will send it off to some human rights lawyers for advice because there's mm. uh, human rights legislation in those jurisdictions. For example, in Queensland, when Queensland passes legislation, they actually send the legislation to me or they send it to about five or six other human rights lawyers. Uh, we look at it uh, and then we advise the government and then they uh, either accept our advice or reject our advice and then they change, uh, change the legislation. So um, there's already advisory committees and advisory relationships that parliaments have uh, and this is basically making sure that when the federal parliament passes legislation that they consult Aboriginal people. Yeah, okay, so that's a that's a very uh, poignant point there, Patrick, in terms of what mm -hmm. that could be of. What, what would that advisory board make of, you, you think? Would it come with legal minds, or do you think we'll have uh, of, of First Nations background, or do you think we'll have more uh, a people of the people, if you, if you get me? Yeah, well, look, um, I mean, I think the point of the, the voice is that all of the... Uh, uh, members of that committee will be Aboriginal people. Uh, my guess is that people will come from different parts of Australia. Uh, and perhaps initially it will be appointed by the parliament, but then I imagine uh, over time uh, there might be a shift to an elected model. Uh, but whatever model it is, appointed or elected, um, you know, remembering that uh, commissioners for APSIC, the old uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, were mm. elected... Uh, and we also have um, elected members of the uh, uh, First Nations Peoples Assembly in Victoria. So mm -hmm. there's already state-based models uh, for assembly arrangements. But this is just a committee um, uh, initially perhaps appointed, then elected. Um, all its members will be Aboriginal. But I anticipate that the voice would be supported by a team of um, you know, administrators, including lawyers, uh, who could advise uh, the Aboriginal members of the voice, uh, you know, what, what, does, uh, what, do, what do the words of this legislation mean? Uh, you know, I anticipate that there would also be Aboriginal people who are lawyers appointed to the voice. So uh, Professor Megan Davis from the University of New South Wales, who's one of the key Yes campaigners, mm. is a distinguished lawyer. Um, Noel Pearson, of course, um, is, a, is a lawyer. Um, you know, Mick Dodson is a lawyer. Uh, there are a lot of uh, significant Aboriginal Australians who are legally qualified, and I'd be surprised if uh, there weren't, you know, a couple of lawyers on on The Voice. Uh, you know, lawyers, um, you know, a, a lot of people in Parliament are lawyers. It, it's a place where law is made, so we shouldn't be surprised. 
Yeah, yeah. As we know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of lawyers in Parliament. Yeah. Uh, you just got to look at look at the background of, of many of the uh, yeah, politicians sure. involved. Uh, yeah. in, in terms of uh, what something I found interesting was the campaign on the no side. Uh, you know, would would you argue has been aggressive to say the least? Do you think yep. because in a country like Australia where over half the population is first or second generation immigrants, uh, people believe giving a voice to First Nations people could invite calls for other communities for similar treatment? Um, what should be done in this space? Yeah, well, look, um, I, my father uh, emigrated to Australia um, and I think if you have a K and a Y and a Z in your surname... Uh, then it's pretty obvious that uh, you know <laughs> that you that you didn't come from sort of you know English and Irish background, uh, which is you know where a lot of the uh, the white people who've been here for you know fifty, hundred, two hundred years, you know co- colonials. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm not I'm not one of those people. Um, so um, and my perspective is really this: um, uh, what the current debate is about um, is really the difference between equality and equity. So at the moment, um, you know, a lot of the people in the No campaign are saying, well, why should Aboriginal people uh, get a voice and, and why not other people? Uh, and, and, and my response to that, and I think a response of um, people in the Yes campaign is, if you uh, look at Australia and you're satisfied with uh, the um, treatment of Aboriginal people, uh, the, 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 the amount of power that Aboriginal people have to um, uh, direct their destiny... Uh, and the um, condition and uh, you know the condition of uh, Aboriginal people and Aboriginal matters, uh, then you'd probably vote no. Mm. But if you're dissatisfied that and you want to see improvements, uh, this is a step towards improvements because Aboriginal people will get the opportunity to speak to Parliament, um, and 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 they will be consulted directly when any legislation is passed. So, I think um, really the the yes campaign is about equity. It's about uh, giving Aboriginal people a voice at the table uh, and given uh, the fact that um, uh, this country was colonised and colonised quite brutally, uh, it makes sense to uh, provide First Nations recognition and to give Aboriginal people a voice at the table. So um, as far as, um, uh, you know, uh, immigrant populations and, and people saying, well, look, I, you know, my father came from Holland, uh, you know... Uh, Somebody else's father came from Italy or Greece or some other country. Um, and I guess my response to that is there are already uh, uh, committees in Parliament that specialise in multicultural affairs. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we have a minister uh, for uh, multicultural Australia. Um, if you look at the, um, uh, the, the people who, in, in the government, uh, our, our, um, our Prime Minister is uh, the son of an Italian migrant. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's uh, multicultural. Australia is a is a significantly multicultural country, and our parliament um, reflects that multiculturalism. And uh, so, you know, any any um, any government uh, that wants to pass legislation in Australia has to be conscious of uh, the fact that we're a multicultural country and take that into account in in developing legislation. Uh, so, I I would say. Uh, you know, and of course there are committee systems in Parliament. If mm. the, if the government wants to take into account the multicultural voice, uh, they can invite people into um, hearings of those committees uh, to take advice. Um, and uh, but but this pro- this proposal is really about Aboriginal people, and that's what we should be focusing on.
Yeah, definitely. It's it's especially should be that, that sense. I, I find it fascinating in that mm. space, and I think the argument of putting forward that Patrick is is interesting. How they they argue? Oh, well, what about the other people? Well, I, I would always believe that we would always have advisory advisory bodies, excuse me, mm. um, and committees to to sort out issues that are going to impact um, migrant communities already. It, it, that would be a that would be a simple yeah. simple statement there. In, in terms of something also that I found interesting. Um, you know, the, for the vote to get up, it needs a majority of four to six states. Uh, and former yep. pri- former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has suggested semi-engaged voters tend to be tend to be risk averse. What could this mean in terms of polling? Like, just give me an idea yeah. in, that, in that terms. Yeah. Okay. So there's two issues there. The first one is the Constitution, um, section 128, which is the last section, uh, uh, details the referendum procedure. And basically, it's got two requirements. The first requirement is uh, a majority of people, in a, a majority of voters in Australia need to support the referendum, so 50% plus one. Uh, but the referendum, uh, uh, to change the constitution, you also need a majority of states. And there are six states and two self-governing territories in Australia, um, and, this, and the territories don't count for this provision. Uh, has to be a majority of the states, and of course, uh, three out of six is not a majority. You need four out of six. So um, that you know, it's a hurdle bar that is included in the constitution uh, precisely because the people who drafted the constitution wanted the constitution to be uh, to stand resilient over time and to be uh, difficult to change. In other words, uh, if people really want to change the constitution then you have to have a majority of states mm. uh, supporting it. Um, so that's going to be a significant hurdle uh, for the Yes campaign, but it always is. Um, you know, out of 44 attempts to change the constitution, only eight have um, passed. So it's it's difficult. Um, and it, it, it will be, you know, if the Yes campaign can, succeeds, then it will be a, a, a mighty success uh, for the Yes campaign because it is a difficult hurdle bar to hop. Um, as far as um, uh, former Prime Minister Turnbull's observations are concerned, it's true uh, that um, Australian voters, um, you know, a, a significant percentage of Australian voters are disengaged from politics uh, and disengaged from referendum processes. Uh, a lot of people make up their mind in the last uh, couple of days. Mm. A lot of people make up their mind on the day. Um, you know, not everybody has as strong an interest in politics as you or I, mm. uh, and we have to expect that some people are going to get into the um, into the uh, ballot box and they're going to make they're going to make their decision right then and there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and and, it, and it's interesting. Uh, a friend of mine uh, pointed out to me that in the lead up to um, uh, many many years ago um, in the 1940s, uh, late 1940s. Uh, the Australian uh, people were invited to uh, pass a referendum banning the Communist Party uh, in the Constitution. Mm. Uh, And um, uh, most people were supportive of that referendum uh, in the lead-up to the uh, vote, but there was a significant shift in opinion um, and uh, people ended up voting against it. Wow. So, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so there, there, there is history in Australia of significant voter shifts happening in the last few weeks uh, before a referendum question has been put to uh, the people. So I think, um, you know, 
uh, unsurprisingly, in, in a lot of political campaigns and perhaps also in referendum campaigns, a lot of the advertising um, is uh, stored up until on to the last few weeks. Mm. So today's the 4th of October. The referendum's on the 14th. It's only 10 days away. I'm anticipating, you know, a lot of television, radio, uh, commercial television, commercial radio coverage, um, news media, social media in the next uh, 10 days is going to be very, very significant. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that a lot of the people who don't know what's going on or don't have an opinion uh, are going to be receiving a lot of information that's going to help them reach those conclusions that they need to reach. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just before we go, Patrick, I was going to say as sure. well, with the whole referendum it's, itself, it's fascinating in that space, you were getting back to the voters' clarity, even coming to a yeah. basic federal election, we, we see people vote for real random parties not seeing what's going on. Something I found mm. also interesting, if the referendum was disputed in some way, um, what could we see in terms of high court action? Yeah, well, look, if there, if there is a clear vote, well, there will be a clear vote one way or the other. Mm. You know, um, it's it's just a matter of mathematics. Uh, but um, uh, the, the referendum proposal that is going to be put to people is not constitutionally problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically got two components. Uh, one will be to say that there shall be a voice, all right? So that means that... Uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will have a voice to Parliament. Uh, and the second uh, aspect of the referendum proposal is that it's up to Parliament to decide um, what that voice looks like. Yep. Uh, and, and a lot of people have said, oh, well, I don't know, that's unclear to me, I don't know what I'm voting for, etc., etc." Well, my response to that is to say this. When, you, when people voted in the last federal election... Uh, you know, the Albanese opposition had said, well, we're going to change aged care, right, mm, for example, mm. right? They didn't actually provide the legislation to people and say, here's the legislation, here's the detail, you vote for it. What, what governments do is they provide a number of general policy directions, right? Yeah. And, that, and, and people should take the same attitude with the Aboriginal voice to Parliament. Yeah, it's yeah. Not nece- it's not necessary to know whether the committee's going to have five people or ten people uh, or whether it's going to be appointed or elected. Mm. What you're voting for is recognition of First Nations people in the Constitution, recognition, recognition that they should have a voice, right? And yeah. then we leave it to Parliament to sort out the details. And we leave it to Parliament to sort out the details all the time. So there's nothing uncertain about any of this. Uh, and quite frankly, it's a, a brilliantly drafted idea because it allows, you know, if the Liberals get back in and they decide, well, we don't want the voice to be, uh, you know, that we don't want it to be elected, we want it to be appointed, yeah. they can make that decision and people in Australia can vote for that or not, as the case may be. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's designed to make sure there is a voice, yep. but it leaves the volume of that voice, the size of that voice, up to the Parliament, and that makes it no different from any other piece of legislation that's going to uh, come through to Parliament. Well said, Patrick. We're all done for the show, so I'll, I'll let you go. Thanks very much for coming on. All the best. Thank you. Uh, we okay. are now all wrapped up here on 3CR Breakfast, uh, 855 AM. Uh, that's all. Thanks for all our guests, and we will talk next Wednesday. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. 
And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events